Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. My guest today is Michael Lee. Michael is a dealer in rare photographs and the director of the Lee Gallery. Today, he takes us on a tour across this under-the-radar market. We discuss the differences between the primary and secondary markets, the buy side, and tastemakers. We also cover his process for finding liquidity, pricing inventory, and his views on NFTs. This is exactly the kind of esoteric market I wanted to explore when we transitioned the show to making markets. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Michael Lee. All right, Michael, thank you for doing this. I know you don't do this, and that's why I feel really lucky to talk about a market. You should know that you were part of the reason we transitioned the show to making markets. The conversation we had about art and photography, it reminded me so much of how all markets are interesting, whether they're doing stocks, bonds, crypto, or in this case, rare photos. So I think a good place to start, how does one become an art dealer? How did you get into this business? My story is one of pure nepotism. I spent a winter after college skiing. And when I came back from school, I started looking at jobs, but worked for my father in the meantime, and I never left. And why I say it pure nepotism as well is we trade as sort of owned inventory, secondary market photography, and entry into that is darn difficult. (laughs) So let's break down just that point of secondary market and owned inventory. In stocks, you have an IPO, secondary market, there's people trading it after that initial offering. What does it mean to be primary or secondary in art? So I think when people think of an art gallery, an art gallery that represents a handful of artists and puts on exhibitions, they get the work from an artist put it up, they don't actually purchase it. That is the primary market. That is your traditional gallery. Where I exist is after those things have been owned or they've been with an estate or something like that or found in the sense of like really old photography, it's the secondary trading of artwork. So it's not released via the primary market. So an auction house would not own the inventory. They put it up for sale. They make it available. They tell you what it is. I'm this sort of owner buyer in order to have inventory and availability for clients in a market that is difficult in many ways. You need to own the inventory. And so when we first started chatting about this, it was interesting to think about it like a portfolio. I started asking about settlement. We'll get into all of that. But when you take risk like that, is that 
common that the dealers have large access to capital to own a diverse portfolio of pieces? Or how does the funding side work for an art dealer? It's a great question. So that's also why I am quick to blame nepotism for my role, is that it is hard to have that capital. And in general, it's not the case. Your young person starting out in art tends to either start at an auction house, or if they're very entrepreneurial, they will open a gallery. So they'll take on a rent and maybe hire a little bit of staff. And so that's a capital outlay, but they're not actually buying the artworks. They're getting them from artists, selling them on their behalf. And so it's much more capital intensive to be a secondary market dealer. And so my story is that it gets into more of the photography market, but why I had access early on and young to deal into secondary market was because I was working for my father. And that's rare. The other way that people tend to become a secondary dealer is that they were a collector first. And so they were active in the market. And generally, they are bringing in outside capital to become a secondary market dealer. There's not many of either one of these types of people in photography. A collector, though, tends to have a different look. And if you are a collector and passionate, it's incredibly difficult to be a good dealer because to be a good dealer, you need to give your clients access to your best stuff. And if you come in as a collector, it's really hard to get something great and then give it to a client. Even though there's a change of money, you feel like a net loser. When your dad started the business or today, or maybe reflecting on both, is it similar to Wall Street where there's trading houses and it was pretty consolidated, but people went to these big names to trade? Or were there lots of independent traders all about you know, making yeah, markets? Yeah, so the photography market, you could say, started 1970. It's not exactly that, but for this discussion, 1970. And it was quite chaos because there would be antique dealers, general art things, but that's also when the auction houses first started departments. So around that time, Christie's and Sotheby's, I believe the first one was started in London. That would have made sense in those days where the photographs that the market wanted to collect. And so the beginnings of the traded market were generally in older, what we call vintage material. The secondary market was much bigger and more active than the primary market then. At 1970, Ansel Adams is still alive, but you would write him a letter and order a picture and he would write you a letter back and mail you the photograph. That's how a lot of people got their Ansel Adams. Occasionally, that stuff would go to a gallery, but gallery representation of photographers was still pretty rare. There was two major galleries in New York at the beginning of the market, Witkin Gallery and Light Gallery. And again, they would represent some artists and new work, but they would also sell major modernist photographs. And those are probably what paid the bills because you can find old receipts and they're $155 of a picture. Crazy. So basically, when it first starts in the 70s, a secondary market is formed. Was it considered the high quality part of the art market when you're in the investment world? Short seller, hedge funds, the highest, and then long only equity and then fixed income. And I started in muni bonds, which is like the lowest. 
Now that's awesome. And that relates terribly well. So photography, 1900, it relates to the history of photography. In general, photography has been the bastard child of the art world. I mean, in today still maybe is in some degrees, but the questions have changed. So turn of the century, 1900, photography is in this fight to have it considered art. And the father of this movement is named Alfred Stieglitz. He does have a gallery. He's the guy who married Georgia O'Keeffe. And so again, he's making his money selling John Marin's to Frick or someone like that. So he is selling paintings, but he was a photographer himself and he led the group of photographers and published a magazine. And these photographs were made to sort of convince the art world that they were art. The Museum of Fine Arts in Boston accessioned 10 Stieglitzes in the mid-30s. They're half a million, million dollars a piece. They're perfect photographs, gorgeous. They wouldn't buy them from him. They accepted his gift for an acquisition. That's how he had to get his work into museums. So it was always struggling that way. And then the same thing sort of in 1970. I mean, price points are terribly low. It is not collected by major art collectors and whatnot. It did leave the door open, though, I would say, for people to build incredibly well-known and named collections and really make a name for themselves collecting. The major collectors in photography were really well-known. The man's name was Sam Wagstaff, and I believe he was intertwined with Robert Maplethorpe. And they were discovering and real sort of pioneers of building photography collections. And you could do so without being a crazy industrialist. How much of the photography being the bastard child of the art world has to do with the reproducibility versus a painting? A lot. Size is also a big deal. Size matters in art. A hundred percent. If you look at almost any current painter right now, it's priced by size. And photo forever was fairly constrained in how big they could make it. So that's a problem. Reproducibility is a problem. Difficulty of understanding the nuances of photography is just absurd. The learning curve is very, very long. And there's a lot more options. So a photographer can take a thousand pictures. They can take 10,000 pictures. They can make 20 prints of an image. They can make one print of an image. They can make a hundred prints of an image. And so finding through all those variables makes it terribly complex and it's quite the depth. And so that actually, I think, hurts it as a collectible art form because you're required to learn so much or at least rely on a dealer or an advisor to build. And the economics of things that aren't very expensive can get in the way of that. Explain to me more about the profile of the photography collector. Let's start on the buy side, and then we'll move to the sell side, and then we'll do the exchange. So on the buy side, the person looking to collect photography, they've gotten all the art, and now they're moving into this space? Or is it a very distinct crowd that's separate from painted? That's an awesome question, because it's changed, in my opinion, lately. But I mean, I would say from the 1970s till 2010, photography was collected by photography collectors. And that's what drove price increases throughout the market is that there was a big moat around it. And 
there wasn't that much interest from outside in photography. So how they collected, there was a European man who just needed the best. And so he would buy a print. And if another print of the same image by the same maker came along and it was a better example, he would buy that one. My favorite types of collectors, they have this public legacy duty. There's this group in San Francisco of wealthy photography collectors. And for the most part, they don't collect what each other has. And it's more because the end goal is to give them to the museum in the city. And so they're kind of a team in that way. And so they sort of isolate and grow in that way. And it starts with their interests for sure. But for the most part, they try not to buy the same thing. Interesting. I want to go deeper on the idea of the best. So like with a baseball card, although I question how authentic this is, the ratings, and they'll say like a level 10 is the highest quality. Is there an outside authority that says this Ansel Adams is a 10 out of 10? Absolutely not. And that's what makes the game so difficult is that baseball card, I get the rating systems for the most part in baseball. I don't think that you could get people to, especially in like his, like say pre-1960 photography. As it gets newer, there's more consensus that this is a great print. But then the scales vary in between each artist so drastically. It's just absolutely brutal. So your Ansel Adams, your Edward Wesson was a major American modernist. They just can't compare to each other. So each photographer, you have to understand their individual markets. Then the other thing that gets ancillized again is the best example for anyone starting out to get the variables in photography. Size matters. <laughs> and then when it was printed matter. Generally speaking, earlier is better, but not always. They could be made in different processes, then it is very much conditioned like a baseball card. An Ansel Adams picture needs to be black and white and the contrast needs to be right. But what will get tricky is that over time, he changed his preference. <laughs> so his pictures got higher contrast through the years because that was the culture of the scene through the days. He was making the photographs more dramatic. What confuses people more is that when he died, the pictures he liked best, generally speaking, aren't what the avid collectors want now. So putting that in your head can be challenging. Saying on the buyer side, the collector side, you mentioned the San Francisco crowd. For photo, I'm curious how this will compare to art in general, if you have a view on it. It's just geographically, I know you go to Paris and France is a big deal, but are the buyers, is it an American crowd? Is it a European crowd? Where is the wealth that buys? Change has been in the air a lot lately, but 1970 to roughly 2010, definitely an American dominated collector base. A lot of photos would come out of England and France and mostly those two for European nations. It was generally American collectors, and they'd be very tied into museum circles. Every major collector, bar a couple, would be a trustee at the museum, or they'd at least be part of the photography circle at the museum. And that is critical. That's changed with a lot of other reasons. And what's happening now is 
photography is a lower priced art form in general. And there's this massive explosion of these small little photography galleries throughout Europe. And part of maybe why is the biggest fair for photography is next week in Paris, simply called Paris Photo. And for years, it was held in the Grand Palais, which is this giant building with a glass roof. It can't be nicer. It's the most perfect art fair venue in the world. And Europeans, again, stereotypically, collect art for themselves and not monetary reasons, not necessarily to leave as well. Where I focused generally was people building legacy to leave. And those tend to be my favorite collectors, but also where photography excels the best in secondary market, not necessarily in primary. None of them would buy it in terms of trying to flip. And that made my life difficult in the sense that you'd put all these rare masterpieces and collections that never surfaced again. So you just keep burying bodies. And it was just, where's my next supply come from? The buyer base. So you mentioned the museums. I'm curious on the demand side, you had some big collectors that were hugely influential originally, and now you've got maybe a bit more disparate or lower buying side, but you also have museums. How do they play into the demand variables? Does a museum buy from you? Absolutely. One of the reasons why I was able to make a living in Massachusetts is because of all the university museums and all the museums here. Photography is a very generous community in the sense that there's endowed funds for a lot of these things. It's a lower price point, so museums can do a lot more with photography in order to tell some story about something else or carry a period of art and whatnot. For the longest time, again, museums were trying to build their base, building secondary collections with me. I mean, to be honest, in the last 10 years, it's a two-thirds, three-quarters of my business is direct to museums. Sometimes they have these supporters who will buy things they'll hold for a little bit and donate to the museums. But it's very intertwined with museums and public legacy. Where I'm going with all this is some of the changes in photography and what's happening. And the market has moved to a lot more primary market base of living artists, of a very diverse and wide-ranging crowd, Photographs have gotten a lot bigger, so their use has changed a lot more. Museums absolutely still buy living artists and living photography, but also your general art collector is far more able to just buy certain photographs for this and that house that will fit with the new collection just fine. They're very much in the contemporary dialogue. So the museums are buyers, but one thing I'm curious is just who are the tastemakers for the art form? Who decides, okay, this is the thing that people want. This is where the market's going. You have to make a bet. You have to commit capital. You have to buy these things to store them, protect them, make sure they're sellable again. But how do you think about where the market's going or how you want to place those bets? Forever. And again, in the last five, 10 years, we've had a lot of change in this. It was MoMA. I mean, it was the curator the head of the Department of Photography at MoMA. That was the most important tastemaker for years. They've been men almost all the time. Maybe 15, 20 years ago, that started shrinking a lot more with 
for whatever reason, whether it's internet or information flows or whatnot, where I would come in and follow, you're saying is me committing my own capital, an end in secondary market would be based on the curator crowd, the the intellectuals, the academics. And so they would do these shows where they would highlight early color photography or they'd highlight a period. A lot of art goes through periods and it can be revisited and critiqued. And that way they'd come out with this book. And there's all these books that are essentially buying guides. There's a buying guide for the new topographics, which is like American photography of the early 70s. And the bigger museums and the important curators, not just at MoMA, would become the sort of tastemakers. I guess where I'm getting at why it's not the same quite now is Instagram's terribly important and photography's availability isn't just in the photography world anymore. The largest art galleries in the world all represent one or two or three photographers now. So it's gotten far more despaired, as you said, and that's changed the game quite dramatically. So buying guides aren't quite the same as they used to be. And that's a slang term, but for sure, they would have a lot of influence. And, you know, the pace of things was a little slower. If an important book came out on a period or an artist or women photographers were overlooked and someone does a major show on women photography of the first half of the century, the museums go look at their collection and all of them would go, shit, we have none. And that was my job. That's exactly what I do is fill holes in major collections and things that are hard to get. They don't come up at auction regularly. Quality varies. And like I said, it's a very difficult medium. So to go in and learn all these new artists year after year was what I needed to do. That was the research is what is available and then how do you deliver it at the appropriate pricing. So let's say you're looking at a museum and you're saying they're really underweight female photographers from the 1970s and you see this trend, you now have to make a risk-weighted decision of how much of your portfolio do you want to own of this and then how long do you have to own it for? It's brutal. It makes no sense. I mean, because you miss constantly and there's no guarantees and it's full competition. You're not measured on your percentage returns, you're measured on just what you got. The richest guy wins every time. So that's a challenge. So, I mean, you're lucky if you flip a photograph in a year, it can take forever. One of the things I said too about people being in secondary market, if you come from a collector, some people take the approach of they're just going to buy works, call themselves a dealer and price things above market and hold. And so they will just live on this this is what I think it's worth and someone's gonna have to pull it out of my hands. My strategy was entirely opposite. It was all about selling at market every single time. That's a vague term in art for sure, but it was absolutely based on selling at market. When you're selling, this goes to two sides, one, how you acquire inventory and then how you list it. So walk me through the process of how do you say, okay, I have this inventory. I want other people to know about it. How does the exchange happen? That's the beauty and the problem of the game. That is where my edge is, is that I don't show my hand at all on the internet. Some people do. I don't want to give them anything of showing my hand. So right now you can look online a little bit, but in general, you have to poke. 
You have to call holders and poke, or the world revolves around a very traditional calendar. There are major auctions in the fall and the spring, and there are these two major art fairs in Paris and in New York in the fall and the spring. No one does a damn thing in the summer, and the winter you source. Okay, and so in the fall and the spring, is it you have a group of buyers you'll call and they'll be like, hey, I have stuff, you should see it? Or is it inbound, hey, Michael, can you find something like this I'm missing? My business was built on pretty hilarious Willie Loman style sales. I remember that my first sales trip, and this was again why I have to admit that it's pure nepotism. I would call, I mean, in 2004, maybe you could send an email. You'd get an appointment with a museum and you'd say, hey, can I show you some? And you'd find the tape and you'd literally get on a plane with two bags and 35 to 40 photographs varying from 5,000 to 100,000 a piece. And you would just plop them on their table and you'd play photographs. You'd look at the baseball cards. And there where you learn sales of selling something to someone who knows way more than you, because every one of them is a PhD. I didn't major in art. I learned to shut my mouth quickly, say objective things, but also learn. So like the amount of learning you had to do was intense. And so it was constant studying as a young guy. But that's generally to say what happened for selling is I would visit directly. I did this for years is I would go to San Francisco. You make a appointment with the museum. You do your same road show that way. And you call some private collectors or you ask the museum to introduce you to who their supporters are. And then finally, you can't underestimate the importance of art fairs for the whole art market for various reasons. Photography just terribly important because they're where you establish your position in the field. You show what you want to sell, what your tastes are, how you price, how you interact, what you can deliver. But honestly, they were also massive sales events. So it wouldn't be unusual to sell 75% of my year in four days. Maybe we'd write 20 invoices. They might be all people that I've known for 15 years. But if you're doing 75% of your inventory in 20 invoices, that would suggest that these 20 people have yearly sales. sales. But this would suggest that they're not buying one photo. Or are they buying lots of photos? Some people run the whole gambit and they will buy really inexpensive and really expensive. Some people want tons and tons of pictures. I mean, there's archive buyers. They just will go and scoop entire press archives and they just own warehouses and they just live for the quantity. And then there's people who just need specific things because they've already been collecting. Generally speaking, where I came in, it was small numbers because not being in a major city in a major city affords you access to the truly wealthy and having a gallery is something that the truly wealthy really want to support because it has ramifications for the city. So like San Francisco's biggest photography gallery is the biggest photography dealer in the world. And there is the biggest collectors in the world there. And 
they support him and whatnot. It's all part of supporting the ecosystem. But where I come in is more, they've already learned the game and they come to me because I expand the collection. I provide synergies. And so well, the gallery is kind of an interesting place. You walk by galleries in New York and sometimes there's a party going on and there's a line to get in. Other times it seems like the most expensive, wasted real estate I've ever seen. How does the gallery's business model work in the market? What role do they play? What can get so tricky in New York is for a new person, you can be really duped by how a gallery looks. The guy who sold WhatsApp, you went from zero to eight bill in a second. You're going to need to buy Twombly's and Rothko's. And you've got all the budget in the world. That is pretty much why art fairs matter so much. It's not entirely based on this, but art fairs are where the scene selects the best. It is such a ladder positioning thing. Not necessarily how big their booth is in an art fair, but somewhat. Where they are in an art fair? Definitely. You know, which art fairs they're in? Absolutely. Art fairs are this crazy ranking system of like, who's done good for a little while longer and whatnot. So galleries themselves are rather tricky. And in many senses, they're kind of an afterthought. They're terribly important in order to have an artist stable. You need to be able to show your artist's work in a public setting so that it can get reviews, it can be on a calendar, it can build a resume of the artist. But walk-in of these things isn't really what drives it. What makes it money? I know the artists want to be shown. They want to say, hey, come to my gallery event. That's a thing. It feels like a book launch or something. But then is there a big market for exchanges where that's where a lot of pieces get sold? They get sold in lead up to the exhibitions and lead up to fairs. So the way it generally works in a gallery is you just send out these PDFs, the price lists. And so that's the exhibition. Whether people go or not is almost irrelevant. Most of the people who go to these opening parties are the artists and young little scenesters or maybe advisors. And the buyers these days, you can just take a video. You feel like you're in the room. You can look at it and people are more and more comfortable with that every day. So they can buy via not being in person all the time. But they're important calendar events to sort of force scarcity on something. Give me the behind the scenes of how art moves up that list. I know as an example with watches, if somebody wants a rare watch and they want the price that's listed on the website, if you've never bought an expensive watch, what you don't know about when you go to a watch dealer is you have to buy a bunch of the watches the dealer is just wants to get rid of and you might not even want to work your status up to get that. And that is 100% the art of collecting. That is the beauty of the game that happens at all facets. What you're asking about is how do you get the hot new, new piece of art that the gallery is showing? If they only have 10 pieces in this exhibition, how do you get it? That's exactly right, is every time they have an exhibition, you support the gallery and you buy one. And it might be way cheaper or just far more available. And so you're supporting the gallery. So absolutely greasing the wheel happens at all aspects of art. Where it happens for me is what I think are the greatest artworks are these, the first French photographs made. 
these guys don't have shops. You find them in their apartments and they show you the first box and it's a bunch of crap and you buy a couple things for a thousand euros or two in the hopes that they then go out and get the next box. And in there is the great Gustave Le Grace seascape and you're like, uh, that's the one and you slide over 20 grand in cash. And it is absolutely accessed through continual support. Where it also even matters with people working with me is, like I said, I price everything at market. I don't have a long-term thing. My goal has always been to be the best art dealer and not really carry for some grand appreciation. It's part of a strategy, but if I get something rare and you don't hammer me on the price of everything we do and you're a consistent buyer and you're friendly and you introduce me, you're going to get first crack in this rare thing. And collecting is competitive. First crack matters so much. And especially in secondary market photographs when things more were being discovered because they'd be discovered in groups. So like something comes out of an artist's estate or an attic and there's 50 pictures and they all made a hundred years ago. First guy chooses, you got to earn that spot. And that is the game. I think that's also the saddest part of my market now is people don't like playing that game. It bothers a lot of people. And so that changes tastes a little bit and makes it hard for new people to get in. And it's tricky and it changes what is collected and what is shown. And it's different. Why do you think that is? Why is it when you say, you're an art that is such, at least I'd say personally, such an intimidating thing to talk about. My grand theory is that it takes so much more money in this country to feel secure than it used to be. Our business was built via mostly the professional class and there's plenty of access to truly investor class or industrialists or whatever you want to call them. But there was a lot more of your average professional buying and they are generally gone from the market. They just do not feel as secure anymore. So you're selling to a different crowd. I hear that. The grand theory is interesting. I guess there's something deeper there where people are buying expensive homes. They're spending a lot of money on bags and cars and watches. There's this new money side of it. But when you walk into a home, it might cost millions of dollars. The art sometimes was purchased on eBay for 20 bucks and the frame costs more than the painting. I only know that because it's shown to me in this weird way of, I got this on eBay. There's something interesting to me that art feels like it's such rarefied. If you're collecting art, you're like up there. And the answer is actually somewhat simple that you talk about with your shrink is that it's terribly exposing. Art exposes you like no other collectible. No one looks down at a $200,000 Porsche. You can show me a shit ton of art for $200,000 and I'll be like, them trashy. It's sad when someone gets duped and they bought a uh, Mr. Brainwash. You're just not quite getting why... You had something, it can be terribly expensive, but it doesn't show that you go to museums. It doesn't show that you spend time in this, that you work the relationships. But in general with art, it's terribly exposing. And so 
Did you get Le Chat Noir poster or do you have Lower East Side hot gallery art that no one recognizes? It's really, really challenging to fit your social circle with artwork. And Europeans are more sensible to it in general and New Yorkers generally are. So let's talk about the condescending side, because I was exposed to this slightly, not by you being harsh. I just wanted to know. And I asked you about NFTs and digital art. He told me he did photography. So I was like, do you know Justin Arversano, who people don't know, who is a photographer, and he put stuff on chain. He had a Twin Flames, which was intriguing to me because it was pictures of twins all over the world and different cameras. And it's a cool story. And I showed it to you. And what was your reaction? I mean, I bit my tongue. And I've met him once, and it's not necessarily a dish on someone specific, but that is a series and an artist whose work price-wise does not match the photography market. So the value of those things, I don't know what they are now, but could have been 100000 or 400000 and prints of all of them in one sold for a million at one thing. Well, he wouldn't have passed an MFA class. So most young people who get gallery shows, who get acclaim, they went to Yale MFA. Whether they didn't go just there, they've just been through harsh critiques and their practice is very refined and it fits this art world narrative of studio professors critiquing their work for years and it's been built on and you can just see it forever. And the conceptual thinking behind it tends to be very deep and a lot of people buy art to show they're smart. And the problem with that artwork is that it's just shallow in thinking. When he made the prints to go with the NFTs at Christie's, there's this picture of him and there's a hundred prints and one of the frames in the bottom corner is like falling off and they still published it. And they're these cheap, they look like drugstore prints because it didn't matter to him as an NFT artist. It didn't match photography. And at the end of the day, it was still just photography. So he lost on the thinking. He lost on the craftsmanship. And his pricing was 10 to 20x what the hottest photographer would sell for. So you're really asking for criticism in that regard. And so is there any world where the NFT artists is like that time and the 70s when the art world looked down on photo and said like look these are just producible is it like the new bastard child that will someday be the photo that photo was to art i have nothing against nfts as a concept nothing against digital art i think things that are made as an nft or digital art in general that is thinking about life that way makes a ton of sense. The question of photography is a little interesting because of Instagram, cell phones, printed photographs. That question hasn't been answered yet. So Justin Aversano was the first person to really promote, make noise, and get a hold of the digital market. He was first and important in that regard. But whether that stuff needed to be digital and NFT, I mean, bluntly honest, no. Why does that need to be an NFT? I bought an NFT from a guy who was very interested in computer science and did photography. So it was all about how you use scanners and software. And that's what the NFT was about. And so things that are more like, I think they use the term natively digital. 
that's where I'd go with. That is where things matter. It's why I think crypto punks make a ton of sense because they are natively digital. Everything about that project makes sense for an online world. And that's why I don't think that the photography in NFTs is making all that much sense because it's just not completely necessary. For CryptoPunks, it absolutely is. The whole thing fits and it fits perfectly. Interesting. I did not think you were going to go there with that. I guess just staying on the digital part, part of it was that they were on chain and there was a native part of it. But this gets back to the markets of the discovery of your dad going to a flea market and finding an Ansel Adams and buying for like 10 bucks and then being like, I know this is worth a lot more. It was a huge opportunity. And your market is then you've got multiple things. CryptoPunks come along where you have this creation of massive wealth. And to me, that there's something there about the buying base that bought them. The people that bought a Justin Arvisano are not the same people buying an Ansel Adams. And so to think that to you, the CryptoPunk crossed it is very interesting to me. When those things price skyrocketed, there is a ton of art buyers banging the drums saying, we see that this is taking off. And I think if you look mostly at what the big auction houses took to their NFT sales, it was things that made sense digitally. And it's this whole idea of conceptual art and the real thinking behind art needs to be challenged. It's tough. It's not a guaranteed yes or no black and white response, but when things are based on thought, it's definitely better if you look at that and you see someone's trying to take a point of view and this is what they're doing with it. I can see it. I think that it as a form of tradability and rarity, knowing that this is the one, there's something that's interesting there. They are infinitely more efficient in tradability than photography. You have no idea how many were made of most things. Like newer work might be addition, but older work, you don't know how many were made. And you have to like go search museums to be like every website of a museum be like, all right, I found four. The sad part about NFTs specifically was that one of the things when I would talk to traditional art buyers that were usually much older and were asked, were curious about it, had to do with the royalty part that originally NFTs, and it wasn't an on-chain thing, that's why it went away. But originally, every time that artwork sold, the artist was making money. And I thought that was amazing. It bothers me that Ken Griffin sells to Steve Cohen for 100 million, and that family, maybe they held on to one, but the artist who originally sold that painting for $1,000 is not part of the $100 million trade. That has been a long topic in art that was a great thing that the smart contracts and NFT can do automatically. They do that in Europe, actually. The problem is the NFT world, it wasn't in the smart contract. And because it wasn't, of course, another friend who does collect was like, it's going to go away. He's a Wall Street trader. And sure enough, it all went away because it wasn't encoded. Now it's just like zero, royalties are zero, unless you choose. See, it's a complicated question, though, and that isn't. When you lay out money for art and the art can cost like next to nothing to make, you are transferring risk. And so I, again, being in this so long, I'm plenty sympathetic to the fact that there's no royalties. There's a lot of ways for artists to deal with this, basically, is your next series is priced a lot more. You don't have to release everything. 
is the other way. So you can leave stuff in an estate or whatnot. There's no real rules in art. There's an artist named David Hammonds. He's an African-American top three American artist these days. And there's so few of it that he can just call up the collectors and sell it direct. Or he can be like, I want to put one at auction today or whatever. Or I want to work with a gallery because I like their space and I want to do this project here. And so he can be a super free-floating artist. His great David Hammonds at the same thing. What's amazing is why is he known? Well, he was selling snowballs on the side of a street. He laid out a blanket, made some snowballs, and said they're for sale. That was his conceptual project that really catapulted him. And then these great pictures of him in New York wearing an overcoat in the winter with a blanket out, selling snowballs next to the guy selling watches. And now this guy does basketball hoops that he sells for $5 million a apiece. He proved his artistic chops. You can deal with that as an artist. I get the resentment. Today, I was telling you the story of first major Warhol collector was a guy who owned a taxi cab firm. He bought Warhol and others of the period and put a lot of work up at Sotheby's and had this big auction and probably sold 10x the value in 10 years. And no one had seen anything like that in art before. And the artists were pissed, pissed. But at the same time, they keep making art. It sets a new high level for their art. And that guy sold so early that all these things he sold for 25 grand are worth 80 million now. I mean, nothing beats the stories of people who are trading Basquiat's. Every art person has something they sold so early, but then you meet someone who's like, I sold a Basquiat for 40 grand and it just went to auction last year at eight mil. And you're like, yeah. So with pricing, and I want to get into how, when you say you price for market, how you think about pricing. But the Basquiat, the reason why it was interesting to me is because there was a bunch of Basquiat going on while the digital art was selling. And I'm looking at it being like, I don't understand this. It seems like other people want this. So we're just in this mimetic rivalry that because the Yale MFA people said it is, or because someone wealthy bought it. This will blow your mind. The reason why Warhol and Basquiat, but Basquiat especially, keeps selling for big bucks is because they're actually all out there and not in museums because racism and street art, the museums didn't collect Basquiat. And by the time they finally came to their senses, it was just out of their league money-wise. That is one of the few things of such massive value that the art world completely missed and snubbed their noses at because it was so new, so radical. That maybe that happened with NFTs. Maybe that's why museums won't get crypto punks. I mean, I think they're quite out of their league if they wanted to. When you work on Wall Street, you basically see what Wall Street buys. So like, I remember when they bought the formaldehyde shark. I see something like that. And like, how often is it that this, it's just a boom bust cycle that somebody does something. Are they still making formaldehyde sharks? Or is that like a thing? Is Basquiat going to hold those prices? Or is this just like short-term volatility where you get these spikes? So yeah, the taste variable in art is the most insane variable anywhere because taste can change like crazy. But yes, Hearst did go start putting other animals in formaldehyde tanks after. So it can be done at any time. He can control the supply of this stuff. It might not be quite as valuable as the shark, which summarized the whole thing perfectly. But yeah, he can work off of that. And so maybe he didn't make a ton of money off the shark, but 
there'd be the next thing that he can sell. And he might not get a royalty if Cohen flips that to Griffin for 200 mil, but he's done just fine. And not just fine. He just moves on to bigger, broader shows. Damien Hirst, the artist, did some silly show where like they made all of these sculptures and sunk them in Venice and people would buy them. I did the Damien Hirst NFT. Did you know about this one? I like this. So he made 10,000 paintings that were like dots. They were small. And then you could buy 10,000 NFTs of the same thing. This is what I liked about it, the gamification. You had a year to decide to burn the real painting that was like in a London vault, and like I set it on fire, or burn your NFT. And if you burnt the NFT, they would mail you the real painting. That's cool to me. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interactive and it gives people choice. And that ties in with art well. Of Conceptual art can be very simple in concept, but there's something there. There's choice there. There's thought there of what you're going to do. He's playing on the novelty of NFTs. That is, I think, natively digital. Again, something that could only be done with NFTs. He chose dot paintings, which are simple and stupid, but that works with his art in a lot of ways as well. Fit matters. And I think that's kind of the key. I think when NFTs just came such a boom so fast, it was like, how could anyone gather a scene and get taste and know an artist's work? And that's where things I felt were so much easier or different in secondary market is, okay, I can judge this photograph by the artist's body of work. I can judge it by the artist of the period's body of work. Does that fit what a 1850 photograph should be? Is this a good example of that? Is it a good example of this artist? Is it the only one by a woman? Things like that. I also really geek out in American history and photo is terribly challenging in this regard that I've owned some of the most important American photographs and they are worth pennies compared to other photography because the interest is far more historical than creative. And then five years later, something happens and two people really get that. That's it. That's the one that existed. And you will see massive price shoots on that. But then there's no other one. You can blow up the supply and demand curve in a second with rare artworks. How do you price something? I put 10 of these rare photos in front of you. How are you thinking, this is the price I'm going to put on this? Generally speaking, I'm a market follower from auction results, slightly less of than what galleries are selling them for. But in general, it's auction results. It's so illiquid, which I find it fascinating when people have to price like illiquid things. You're mostly dealing with comps, like this is what the artist sells for. A little bit, yeah. It's very comp-related, and that makes things fascinating when you're like, I think this is priceless, but I want to be a good dealer. And I've done that so many times, and in hindsight, it's just crazy. And there's a very famous French artist who's a conceptual artist. He did these blue sponge paintings. His name is Yves Klein. He also did this sort of performance work where he jumped out a window and was caught on a sheet by some guys, but took two pictures of the scene, cut the photo and hid the people catching him. So it looks like he's just jumping out the window and he gives this great conceptual explanation of what he's doing. The photographs of it are the only record of the thing. So that's darn cool for a photograph. 
his blue paintings are worth 10 mil a piece. This photograph is worth maybe $50,000. And I bought one for 50 bucks once. Where? On eBay. And it turned out to be totally not just a picture of this thing, but really of the time. And you look on the back, you find the stamp, you date the stamp and whatever other little clues of dating it. So this is as close as I've seen to the first photographic record of Francis' most important mid-century artist. And you still sell it because you're like, I got to look cool at the fair next week. And you're like, I just want to be big in this. And you're like, I could have afforded to keep. And that's hard issue with, are you collector or dealer? And so I price that at what they've sold before, or relatively speaking. It's consistent from cars to bonds to paintings or photos. Everyone who's in markets, if this is what you're doing, will tell you never to fall in love with a position. Right. And I actually think it's totally immoral for art dealers to collect. For example, in early photography, there is one very clear king, and he is a very wealthy man from wealthy family. And he takes his job so seriously, and I do not believe he has a collection. And if he wanted to collect, he could just pretty much own them all. And what would that do for the market, for getting them out there? And markets are somewhat related to what gets shown in museums and what gets researched by them, where people get excited. When something does go up in value and there is a lot of collector interest, it'll get a lot more academic money behind it. And so you learn more about why these were so important. So markets are helpful, I'm biased in this, but towards greater understanding of art. So we're at the end. You have to pick where we are and then making market cycle, the chart that we have on our artwork we're going to do for these episodes. So where do you think we are for photo? For secondary market photo, which is really all I can answer. We were definitely in the fear stage. Prices have been lightly declining for a little while, but there's more misses. And there's far more interest in living artists' work these days by all collectors, and it's having an effect. And it's noticeable in what's available in general photography collectors can really afford what they have. They just tend to be less ostentatious people. And so prices aren't bringing anything out. So the only thing that brings things to market these days and keeps the market healthy are the three Ds, death, divorce, and some other day. <laughs> Debt, maybe, I don't know. And so the market is struggling for supply. And I think also in markets that are challenging, if you don't see enough of something, it's hard to spend time learning about it. For a while, I wanted to corner these photographs that are maybe three by five inches and worth $50,000 a piece. But I also had the realization if I buy them all, no one will see them and get them. And then they just look like small pictures of clouds. You can really screw up trying to raise prices of things when then the supply is gone. I can relate back to Warhol and Picasso 
generally speaking, are the most valuable markets and they have massive supply. People want the best in them for sure. And the range is, you can buy a Picasso plate, but you can also buy a $200 million painting. And there's tons of Picassos that almost anyone can get, but they're active. And Warhol is absolutely that way. Basquiat is actually that way too, like I said, because they didn't go in museums. So all the best ones were always privately owned, always escalating in value, and hence they're traded. Fascinating. Well, Michael, this has been a lot of fun. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning. <laughs>